As we've been most recently in the book of Exodus and making our way through the Pentateuch with God's plan of redemption, it seemed appropriate that we might look at the book of Hebrews this morning. In Hebrews chapter 10, you might wonder why we might look at Hebrews for Easter, but nonetheless, what you have in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 is is nothing less than really the explanation for the necessity of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and of His resurrection, of His ascension, and so forth. And So, uh, we have mentioned in the past this idea that uh, as many of us have really grown up in the faith with a, a very dispensational idea, it may seem uh, perhaps to us, and particularly to our children, that the Lord Jesus Christ, that His advent, that His crucifixion, that His sacrifice for us, that His atonement, uh, children, all of these words are in your word search, by the way, um, was uh, somehow a new idea, that it was a New Testament idea, that it in fact is only a few thousand years old. But what we see in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews, uh, shows us really God's entire meta narrative. He helps us to understand what is it that occurred in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Why, why the prophets, priests, and kings? Why all of these? Why the sacrificial system and so forth? And so what we have in Hebrews chapter 10 uh, is the Word of God through the one who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. We also have its validation in the Holy Spirit as well. Uh, so in the last few verses of Verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 10, you have, and the Holy Spirit says, or something to that effect, and basically what, it, what he is doing is affirming all that it was said in the previous verses. Now, as we think about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his accompanying atonement and crucifixion, it might come to your mind, what do the Jews do for atonement today? They can't offer sacrifices anymore. Uh, and as a matter of fact, there, there will be, apparently, or has been in the past, some, uh, if you will, rogue uh, observant Jews that would attempt to sacrifice a lamb near the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem since they can't make it all the way to the Temple Mount. Uh, and you might realize that uh, after the Temple was destroyed, after uh, the forces of Rome overtook the Jews in their rebellion, uh, that the rabbis got together and decided that no longer was a bloody sacrifice required, that they would focus on fasting, uh, they would focus on prayer and these sorts of things. Uh, and you may ask yourself, uh, what did the first century Christian converts from Judaism do regarding the temple activities? In other words, imagine, if you will, uh, the first century Christians, those who uh, lived in the same time that the Lord Jesus Christ walked the earth, those people that uh, were committed and devoted to God and their understanding of their expression of devotion, children, was that they would fully enter into the activities of the temple. Uh, that they would, they would fully appreciate and desire to see the Day of Atonement uh, when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Those days, those festival days, those days that would affirm the fact that the Lord has given to them a way in which their sins can be atoned for, where their conscience can be healed, if it were. You might wonder what they did. How did they understand what to do after the Lord Jesus came? This passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 10 answers that question of what they did, of what they should do. And we also might wonder ourselves in our day, why did Christ 
have to die. Why was it so important not only that he died, but that he rose again from the dead? Why was that so important? So this passage of Scripture answers that question. The contemporary gospel really has centered itself for many with this idea that God needs man. That God needs man. That, that God is lonely without mankind. That He, that, uh, he is uh, sorrowfully wringing His hands in heaven as He longs for that which He needs. But this passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 10 certainly affirms what all of the Scriptures say in this idea that, in fact, man needs God. Man needs God. God didn't, didn't come here simply to give us a better life. God came down, as it were, in the Lord Jesus Christ, because without the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there would be no life for man. And so this passage helps us to understand that. So I draw your attention really to the first idea here, and this idea is that the failure of our first parents brought about the need for atonement, which would only arrive in its finality in the person of Christ. The failure of our first parents. And children, when we talk about first parents, we're not actually talking about your parents. We're talking about Adam and Eve. We're talking about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are often referred to as the first parents. They're the first couple, the first family, if you will. Uh, God created Adam and Eve, and from Adam and Eve, all of, us, all of us came, right? But we recognize that because they sinned, we then have what is often referred to as original sin. We then, they have created for us a need that must be met, that need of atonement, that need of dealing with sin. Uh, so, without asking, we are now responsible. God didn't ask us if we wanted to enter into this. The reality is, is that, we, as we had mentioned before, God has created a, a universe with a moral paradigm, with a structure uh, that has much to do with uh, that which is right and wrong. Um, it may be in our day that we're persuaded that life is not actually really primarily about right and wrong, that the things we do aren't primarily about right and wrong. It may, we may say that it has to do more with my own pleasure, right? That life is really about me enjoying what I can, me getting all the fun out of these years that I have. But the reality is, is that the paradigm, the creation of the world, certainly has included much joy, but the paradigm is framed with that which would require atonement. Let's draw your attention to verse 1 here. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now I draw your attention to this small phrase, the law. The law. What does he mean by the law? When I say the law, or when the writer of Hebrews here says the law, what, what do you think of? It's likely that uh, you're thinking right now of the Ten Commandments. 
You're thinking of the moral law. But it is of absolute urgency that you understand that the apostle here is not referring to the moral law. He's referring to the sacrificial laws that brought about the necessity of sacrifice, of bloody sacrifice. This is very, very important. And this is something, frankly, that cannot be overemphasized because we really, as a people, as an evangelical people, unfortunately tend to be fixated on works righteousness. We're fixated on works righteousness. But the great comparison here in Hebrews chapter 10 is not about the moral law as compared to the gospel. It is very simply about the sacrifices of the Old Testament and of the Old Covenant compared to the sacrifice of Christ. Right? The sacrifices of the Old Covenant compared to the sacrifice of the New Covenant. That's what's being compared. And that's a very, very important idea that we should see here. The planned transition from the First Covenant to the Second Covenant. The law refers to the sacrificial system, not the moral law. As John Owen, whom I have relied upon a good bit for this, for this understanding and some of the aspects of this sermon, uh, draws attention to this idea that the moral law was originally as absolutely considered, had no expiatory sacrifices. In other words, when Moses received the Ten Commandments on the Mount, it did not have associated with it the sacrifices, yes, they were to come. Yes, they were a very important part of the system, if you will. And we discussed that in the, uh, in the sermon on Exodus last week. But we also recognize that the moral law was given to who? It was given to a redeemed people. Now, why is that so important? Well, it's so important because the moral law was not issued as a way in which a people could then uh, work for themselves their own righteousness. It was never intended that way. And so when we compare the moral law, even with the gospel, we should recognize that we're, we're, not, we're, not really, we're comparing two different things with two different purposes. And so that's an important idea here. It's important for us, again, to recognize why do we celebrate the resurrection? What was the purpose of it, right? And we see that, of course, uh, alluded to here. We, we have a reference that we'll look at from Psalm 40 as well. Now, so the Bible again says here in verse 1, the law was but a shadow. But a shadow. Now, what do you think of when you think of a shadow? Well, many Bible students are persuaded that this shadow, children, actually uh, had to do with the category of art. With this idea that the shadow is the first sketch of what would become a beautiful painting. This idea. The first sketch of what would become a beautiful painting. The sketch being the sacrifices of the law that God gave to address atonement. And the beautiful painting, of course, being the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Good things to come. The sacrificial system was a type of the good things. What were those good things that would come? Is it heaven? 
I don't think so. I think the good things to come is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of Christ, the perfect life lived for us, the, the, the obedient entrance into crucifixion and then the joyful raising of Himself from the dead in the resurrection, right? These are the good things to come. With the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, all types of Christ are over. They're ended. We don't need a type anymore. We have the real thing, the reality. And that's what is referred to here in this passage, the good things to come. The Bible says here, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The sacrifices of the law were imperfect and weak, and that the church could never be made perfect by them. This imperfection was by design to be a system that led to Christ. That led to Christ. It's easy to have in our minds this idea uh, that what happened with the old covenant sacrificial system was simply that it, it seemed to begin well, but it didn't actually work. Uh, And that, again, would be a wrong perspective. The writer of the Hebrews helps us to understand that God's purpose and plan was always for there to be something wanting in the sacrificial plan. And it's not only in that. What we see after the Pentateuch of the Bible is the narratives, really, of the monarchy of Israel. Think, if you will, on the concept of prophet, priest, and king, which is realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the Old Testament prophet Samuel. Or Eli. There's nothing wrong with the position of prophet and priest. Just that they were imperfect men. They had imperfect children. There was certainly a desire, recognition, that it's a good thing for us to be led by God, but it was led imperfectly. Not by God, but by these men. And so we see that even that draws our attention to the idea that there's an imperfect earthly promise that was to be realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. The very laborious, demanding, difficult animal sacrificial system was never intended to provide complete soul-cleansing atonement. This is the second point. The Bible says again here in verse 1 of chapter 10, it can never, it can never, that is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant sacrificial system, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now this this should encourage us because it also gives us a window into the real purpose of the atonement and the resurrection. What is that purpose? To be made perfect. To have a purified conscience. To no longer uh, be drawn into the burden of carrying the guilt of your sin. God gives us to that in redemption. That's, That's what the perfect atonement and resurrection accomplished. Redemption accomplished. Right, that, that that now we we know we're, our 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 consciences, if you will, are cleansed. That's the idea. Let's look at verses two through four. 
The Bible says, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, will no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of goats to take away sins. The very laborious, demanding, difficult animal sacrificial system was never intended to provide complete soul-cleansing atonement. To understand Christ, we have to understand the Old Testament. To understand what the Lord Jesus did, we have to understand really God's meta-narrative, if you will. What happened? Why, why this? What couldn't be done with one sacrifice of the law could not be done with a repetition of sacrifices year after year. This is what the Bible is saying. This is the idea. Again, if it couldn't be accomplished in one of these imperfect sacrifices, to do a thousand imperfect sacrifices is not going to make any difference. It is what God called them to do, but again, it was all a type of Christ, this one who would come and have one sacrifice that would suffice for all. It would suffice for all. And that's the idea that we have here. Since the law couldn't make them perfect, their consciences were not purged. A revelation not only of the perfection of Christ's sacrifice, but of what God intended with a full, perfect atonement. A soul-cleansing eternal rest in Christ. Fully receiving forgiveness and affirming one's status of being accepted in the Lord Jesus. Do you want that today? Do you desire to have your conscience purged and clean? That's what, that's what my Master has authorized me to offer to you today. That today, today, you, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, through His death, burial, and resurrection, can enjoy a purged conscience, that which is cleansed. And He offers that to us freely because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. There's another big reveal here in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. You might ask the question, well, why did we ever do that? What? Why? Why do? What? What's up with that now? So that we could understand again the type of that which would draw our attention to Christ. All of this very demanding, very meticulous process, right, was to point to the urgent importance and the necessity of a full, complete atonement. With respect to the law, the Apostle Paul said two things. That is, the law and the sacrifices associated with it. The Apostle Paul said two things in Galatians 3.19 and Galatians 3.24. In Galatians 3.19, the Bible says, Why then the law? That is, the law of the sacrificial system. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. 
In verse 24, So then the law was our guardian. Again, the sacrificial process of the law, our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That we might be justified by faith. The reference to the law in the book of Galatians is very similar to the reference to the law here in Hebrews chapter 10. It's the ceremonial sacrificial law. It's not a reference to the moral law. It's a very important idea. It's a very, very important idea. So again, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that the law, the sacrificial system, was added because of transgressions. When God passed by sin, winking at the ignorance of men and their iniquities, what happened? Well, the world was filled with the flood of impieties. The heart of men was set totally on sin. It brought about the flood, right? The destruction of the flood and so forth. Secondly, it's a schoolmaster to direct us to Christ. It's a schoolmaster. Now, there's an important idea here. There's an implication in schoolmaster. Uh, there's a distinction being made with something that isn't, isn't, doesn't actually show up here in the text. This idea that the schoolmaster, again, should be I'm persuaded compared to a loving, tender father. The sacrificial system was as a schoolmaster. Now, most of you didn't have a schoolmaster, but how would you view a schoolmaster? The inference here isn't that he's a kindly old man that gives children candy. The inference is, is that he is a rather blunt object, actually. That he's kind of rough. That this is an imperfect system. The sacrificial system was very much that. Now, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ was no pretty thing. But nonetheless, the idea here is that there's a comparison being made between the schoolmaster and a loving, tender father. And that's what we have in its finality. It was designed, and in fact, to incline men to long for that which would remove their sins and really cleanse their consciences. Now let's consider verses 5 through 9. The third point, the advent, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ fulfilled all that was necessary for for the full soul cleansing redemption of those called to Christ. The advent, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ fulfilled all that was necessary for the, for the full soul-cleansing redemption of those called to Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ and this perfect plan was not uh, a plan gone bad that was sort of opportunistically made better. I encourage you to view our faith, the Christian faith, not as a new religion. It's appropriately understood as the fulfillment and completion of Old Testament religion. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is the full-orbed fulfillment and entering into that which began at creation. This redemption. We we can read about it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where its necessity is first brought about historically. Now, in verses 5 through 9, what we have is a reference, uh, really a statement from the psalm, from the 40th psalm, verses 6 through 8. So what we have here is a very important idea. As you read through the psalm of David, Psalm 40, particularly in verses 6 through 8, it may come to your attention, what is he talking about? That's a very good question to ask. What is he talking about? Well, the writer of Hebrews answers that question for us. 
So the complete fulfillment of the comprehensive understanding of Psalm 46 through 8 isn't actually in Psalm 46 through 8. It's right here. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. And that's what we have, uh, that's what we have for us here. So the idea is, uh, when we look at this, when Christ came into the world, He said, quoting Psalm 40, "...sacrifices and offerings you have not desired." But a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What is Christ talking about? What is he saying? A body you have prepared for me. To act in our behalf, Christ had to have a human body as we do. Not formed out of the earth as was Adam, nor out of nothing as he created the angels, but out of the loins of Abraham. This is one of the reasons why an animal sacrifice would never work. It couldn't work. Because it wasn't a substitute as a human. This is an interesting idea. The reality is is that God the Father, who is not fleshly, was unable to be a sacrifice for humans. That sounds like dangerous territory, doesn't it? There had to be a Christ. There had to be a human Christ. And the catechism helps us so well. The catechism that's listed today here, question 21 in your catechism, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? I draw your attention to that here. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man, and two distinct natures in one person. Is it in there? No, it doesn't. The last word is forever. When you go to heaven and you look in the eyes of the one that died for you, you'll be looking at a man that took upon himself a permanent limitation of humanity. The Lord Jesus Christ, from the advent of all time, had to do what he did. And he did it voluntarily on the cross for us and was raised from the dead. Now the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, was, of course, was prepared such that it wasn't subject to the pollution of sin as are our bodies. But Christ must have a body of flesh and blood as the sacrifices were also of flesh and blood. Such could be sacrificed. Yes, there were grain offerings. Yes, there were non-bloody offerings, but the sacrifice for sin was a bloody offering. The only things that have blood are things that live. And so that's why we see this here. He had a reasonable soul such that obedience was required in the sacrifice. God gave Himself of His own accord. Christ's body was liable to all the sufferings and sorrows which we deserved. Christ was exposed to all the temptations we were, but was so sanctified by the Holy Spirit, He did not sin and had no guilt. Christ's body was liable to death. Christ could die, and in fact did die. While He did raise Himself from the dead, as Christ anticipated the cross and substitutionary atoning death, He was fully cognizant that it would and could, in fact, end in His death. 
as the Lord Jesus Christ anticipated the sacrifice of His body on the cross. He did not anticipate it as one who was fully cognizant, if you will, that it wouldn't matter, that it was painless. And that may be a mistake that we make as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, that somehow it didn't hurt. That somehow when people rejected Him and spit on Him, that it didn't bother Him a bit. The Bible says that he, he, as He cries out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? That's a window into the sort of agony that the Lord Jesus Christ was going through at that moment. If Christ's body wasn't liable to death, then He couldn't be a sacrifice. And if it wasn't liable to death, He also couldn't be resurrected. Now think about that for a minute. Can you resurrect something that's living? Some people who reject the resurrections in the Bible, for instance of Lazarus, would say that, well, it wasn't a resurrection, we're going to call that a resuscitation. You might ask yourself the question, well, why did Jesus wait all that time to go raise Lazarus from the dead? Before he left, one of the folks that was attending said, by now, he's in the tomb. It's not good. Decay has set in. Lazarus wasn't just sick, he was dead. He was dead. There can be no resurrection without a death. This body was taken up into heaven and resides there at the right hand of the Father, says verse 12, thus assuring the redeemed of the hope that they also will be raised to new life in heaven. On Resurrection Sunday, today, we celebrate the glorious ending of the sacrificial system and redemption accomplished. The consciences of the redeemed perfected. What had to occur because of our sin and a just God in order for us to live with God did occur in Christ, and it could only occur in Christ. Psalm 40, back here again as we read it in Hebrews chapter 10. Sacrifices and offerings, you have not desired. The days of the schoolmaster are over. Christ has come, and Christ alone, only He could do this, as designed from all eternity. He says, But a body you have prepared for me, I have come to do your will. I have come to do your will. He gives us complete insight into what was meant in Psalm 40. I have come, the Lord Jesus Christ, I have come to do your will. A body you have prepared, a corporal, fleshly body. I have come to do your will. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, and that is what He has accomplished, and that's what we, of course, celebrate today. Why did God institute the sacrificial system? To teach the church that without the shedding of blood there could be no true atonement. Let's think about forgiveness. Children, let's think about forgiveness for a minute. When we think about forgiveness, some of you are writing with pencils right now. That's good. I like to write with a pencil. I make mistakes. I have a big eraser I use as well. I like my eraser because it 
I mean, when I erase things, it's like it wasn't even there. Um, you can tell where I sit at the table usually because there's a lot of eraser residue where I sit. But children, forgiveness isn't like that. Forgiveness isn't an eraser. Forgiveness requires payment. Somebody has to pay for our sins. In our day, there's a common thing called bankruptcy, children. Bankruptcy is when someone enters into uh, payments or something in which they can no longer afford. Bankruptcy is a very difficult thing. And in bankruptcy, what happens is an individual uh, cannot pay the bills that they've incurred. And sometimes there's uh, forgiveness, if you will, of that. But the reality is somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay those bills. The people that they owe have to, have to take that in. Some of you may be familiar with the insurance commercials that have to do with, in, with uh, accident forgiveness. That's kind of cool, right? You've got to pay extra for that. You have to pay extra for accident forgiveness. Did you know that? Uh, most, most places require that, and so uh, nonetheless, forgiveness is not like that. Forgiveness from men to God is free for men, but not for God. Forgiveness from men to men also isn't free. includes restoration, restitution. Forgiveness wasn't free. The Bible says again in verses 5 through 7, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. I have come to do your will. So what was the faith of the Old Testament? The faith of the Old Testament was faith in a coming Messiah. Just as the moral law was not established as a method of works righteousness, the associated animal sacrifice atonement system was not ultimately established to accomplish final, conscious, perfecting righteousness. The one was given to redeem people such that they would know how to be holy as reflected the character of God. The other was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, the only adequate sacrifice. Let's look at verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's something that isn't going to be in heaven. There's a number of things that won't be there. I'm thankful for that. But one of the things that won't be there is there won't be a tombstone there for Jesus. Because He's alive. The Bible says in verse 12 of Hebrews 10 that He sits at the right hand of the Father. Maintaining the covenant for us. That's what He's doing right now. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ is. This is the resurrection part of Hebrews chapter 10. Where is Christ now? He's sat down at the right hand of God. This sitting down is very important, children, because really it has with it this idea of finality. I have finished. It is done. That's the idea. But where are we now? Where are we now in time? Well, that's in verse 13. Right now, we're in verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's where we are. There's a certain chronological narrative in Hebrews chapter 10, and so this is where we show up. We're waiting. This is the same idea that's passed actually in the 23rd Psalm. 
In verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's the same idea. What's happening right now? Oh, there's a table being prepared. There will be retributive justice. There will be a final day when all those who have rejected Christ will be cast into outer darkness. And there will be known. The Lord Jesus Christ and those who have been redeemed will be vindicated on that day. His enemies will be his footstool. This is the era that we live in. This is the epoch that we live in. This is the church militant, as it were, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, in case there was any wondering, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is a one-sentence summary of the whole sermon. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For all time. What happens when you trust in Christ? What happens when you receive a Christ who has offered to you life and given to you the ability to receive it? What happens? Well, you begin eternal life at that moment. You begin, you begin uh, this which will cleanse your conscience perfectly. You begin that. You don't have to wait on that. You don't have to wait on that. Verses 15 through 18. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds Cited from Jeremiah 31, then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Jesus can do a lot of things that we can't do. And this is one of them. He can remember things no more. That's cool. That's really cool. Because I know, because you're like me, that you can remember things that happened many, many years ago with perfect clarity. And many of those are sinful. Many of those are the sins of your youth. David says in Psalm 25, Remember me not in accordance with the sins of my youth. Why does he say that? Well, I'm persuaded one of the reasons is because they were fresh in the mind of David. And he may be inclined to treat other people in accordance with their sins. But that's not how God treats us. He remembers our sins no more because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. And what does that mean? Where there is forgiveness for these, there's no longer any offering. That may seem to you uh, sort of a down verse. Let me assure you, that's an up verse. That's an up verse. Where there is forgiveness for sins, there's no longer any need for anything else. No longer any offering. Thus ending the animal sacrificial system. The Lord Jesus Christ, once and for all, came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and ascended on a day like today that we celebrate. Let us pray.